Good afternoon and welcome to AI in Healthcare, an exploration of practical perspectives and use cases, a health system CIO Media Inc. production sponsored by Hewlett Packard Enterprise and Intel. Just a little housekeeping before we get started. My name is Anthony Guerra. I'm the editor-in-chief of Health System CIO, and I'll be your moderator today. We're looking forward to your participation. You can send in your questions or comments in the Q&A box at any time, and we will take those later in the program. And we're going to do a one-question poll later in the event. We're going to get your responses and have our audience, have our panelists guess at the results before we reveal them. It's a lot of fun. Uh, nice way to see the screen today. Click in the top center, get it into side-by-side -side mode. Then you can adjust the divider to get the slides in the video boxes the size you like. And it should say speaker view in the top right-hand corner. Just so you see how we're going to spend our time today. First, we're probably going to go about 40 minutes with our main panel discussion featuring Dr. Zafar Chaudhry, SVP and CIO at Seattle Children's Hospital, Alpin Patel, Dr. Alpin Patel, Medical Director for Artificial Intelligence with the Geisinger and Steel Institute for Health Innovation, Zaki Atia, Co-Director of Artificial Intelligence and Cardiology at the Mayo Clinic, and Dr. Alex Madama, Healthcare and Life Sciences Chief Technologist with HPE. So that's uh, quite a panel we've got for you today. Um, Let's start off. Can you give us an overview of your organization and your role? Zafar? Good morning, everyone. Um, I'm at Seattle Children's. Seattle Children's is a pediatric health system. We have 46 sites and we serve four states in the Pacific Northwest. So our primary focus is taking care of kids. Very good. Alpin? So... Good morning, everyone, or good afternoon, I should say. Um, this is Alpin Patel. I am um, uh, at Geisinger Health, um, and I am the chair of radiology as well as the medical director for artificial, artificial intelligence. Uh, Geisinger is an integrated healthcare delivery system that has uh, eight hospitals, a couple of research centers, our Steel Institute for Health Innovation, um, and um, uh, an insurance company that, that allows us to focus uh, on patients. It allows us to think differently and, and contain costs while taking better care of patients. Very good. Um, Alex. Thanks, Anthony. Yeah, I'm Alex Madame. I'm with Hewlett Packard Enterprise. So we're the one of the leading providers of computer infrastructure systems in the world. Very good. Zaki. Hi, and good morning, everyone. <clears throat> I'm from the Mayo Clinic, one of the biggest uh, health systems uh, in the middle of cornfields in Rochester, Minnesota. And I'm a part of the cardiovascular department and co-directing the AI efforts. Very good. Thank you all for joining today. All right, let's get right into it. And Alpin, let's start with you. How would you categorize your organization's interest in AI and the level of support for AI initiatives? So at my organization, there's very high interest um, uh, level in AI. We believe that AI is a tool that can improve care, uh, just like any other tool. Um, we have awareness and support for, for AI uh, in an appropriate setting from, uh, from our executive leadership and, and even frontline physicians. So, uh, but we, we try to ask a few questions to begin with. Um, one of them is how, how are we going to use this um, uh, 
project or uh, use this particular model to positively affect patient care and ultimately the outcomes while keeping the expenses in check. If we are wildly successful, so one of the first questions we ask, if you're wildly successful in getting the data that we need or the insights that we need, how are you going to change patient care? Uh, if you don't have that answer, then you got to go back uh, and, and find that answer uh, before we, uh, we go ahead with, uh, with modeling and, and so on. Um, how will it integrate into the workflow? Uh, if you don't integrate appropriately, that can actually affect negatively in the workflow. So the, the, the bottom line is there's a high level of interest, but we, uh, we also start with some basic questions before we, uh, we pursue projects. So you want it to be practical, not just theoretical. It's got to actually affect care. Yeah, absolutely. Very good. Zaki? Yeah, so in Mayo, uh, as everything we're doing, we're and looking at the needs of the patient first. So we want to make sure that the AI is built to help the uh, patient to have the best uh, treatment course possible. And uh, as uh, Arpen said, we're trying to build it in a way that will help the physician giving the best care to these patients, right? So there's always the, uh, the question of will it replace physicians? Definitely not, but it will assist them in giving patients the uh, care based on data. And we have, we're very lucky to have data from um, decades of um, very well kept EMR. So we are able to uh, create these tools to hopefully benefit patients everywhere and not only in Rochester. And Zaki, you said your background is as an engineer. So what does specifically an engineer bring to this process? Right, so I'm an electrical engineer by training and did my PhD on AI and uh, I joined Mayo Clinic five years ago and we're working. The way we created it is that me and my team are part of the cardiovascular department. So we're working with physicians, we're sitting next to them. Until COVID, we literally sat in the same offices with the physicians so we can have great interactions and understand the needs very well. Because sometimes when there's a disconnect between the engineers to the physician, you know, we can create great models that are only good on paper or you can uh, translate, you, you basically need to translate the needs of the patients to the physicians to the best tool you can get, right? And that creates a lot of, uh, that requires a lot of collaboration between the physician and the engineer. So we're helping them, asking them the, uh, hopefully the right questions to kind of guide the development of these models. As far as a physician, I'm sure you've seen uh, people who are non-physician create things for doctors that just were not what you needed. So that sounds like what Zaki's alluding to, but your thoughts on the question or anything that's been said so far? So our approach at Children's has been, you need to start by bringing in the right skills into your organization. So we've gone out and we've hired data scientists who specialize in building these predictive models. Mm -hmm. uh, we're similar to Mayo in the sense that we have embedded those specialist people with the physicians and the nurses, because they really need to drive what models we build. And we've embedded AI tools and predictive models in all facets of our operational business uh, so that we can predict when we're going to have sensor spikes. We can predict when, when uh, we have to cancel surgeries or not cancel them. Uh, what's the impact of COVID, flu, uh, all in real time. So we use those data scientists to model what the physicians want us to do. And then we present those on 
dashboards in real time refreshed almost every 30 seconds. So we've taken that approach of skills first and then the technology. Is that something you think generally applies or is it more important in this area? I think you have to understand what the needs of the business are and depending on whether that's the physician or that's Mm -hmm. the, the patient, right? And if you don't do that, then you do get into this model of technologists who build things that are of no use in, in real in the real world. And that's the shift. Because it was never about buying the technology. The reality is you can partner with anyone and buy the tools to do this. It's whether or not it has real value to your business. Very good. Alex, your thoughts? Yeah, so you know, at Hewlett Packard Enterprise, being that we're a technology company and not a healthcare provider, right? You know, we look at it as sort of we take a step back, right? And we look at AI as having you know the the unique ability to really extract meaning from data uh, when you can define what the answer looks like, but not necessarily how to get there, right? So we look at AI as as a way to amplify the human capabilities, right, and really turn this exponentially growing data. Uh, into insight, action, and then value, right? So what, what we do is we provide tools, support, um, hardware infrastructure that really allows the people, the, the panelists on this call, working with the data scientists, working with the physicians, really bring that all together. And from the data gathering at the edge, whether it's in the hospital where the patient is, bring that data together, make it available so that these AI models can be built and actionable um, data uh, can be created and, and real action can be can be taken, whether it's on the clinical decision support side or where we see more commonly on the operational side of things, right? Mm-hmm. I think um, Go there's, ahead. there's so much work to do that any single model of, uh, of implementation or to creation is probably not going to work. Uh, you know, there are a hundred projects we want to do but we're, we probably just won't have the bandwidth to do that. So do we do 50 and then partner with others uh, uh, to, to do the other 50? I think that's, uh, that's the other thing we got to keep in mind. Very interesting. Uh, Zafar, what are your thoughts on that? I, I apologize. Well, go ahead. No, kick it over to Zafar. Yeah. So I think what I've learned in this journey is that not only do you have to create the models with the right stakeholders, but do the stakeholders then understand the output of what you've created? Because I don't believe in creating models or using AI just to display information. You actually have to take positive action against what you see. And certainly what we've learned in our journey is that we also need a set of analysts in our team that can help explain what all of this means. And if you were to move the needle what that would mean for that particular individual or that particular particular patient cohort or for our business in general. And, and so that's why it's a combination of the technology and the people and how you change the processes. Agree. Absolutely. Sounds like, uh, you know, very practical. We want to be practical about this. Uh, we, we want to hire the skills. We want to understand, have the, the ability to, to affect change, work with the physicians and make sure we're solving real problems. Um, nobody wants to just be doing theoretical work that doesn't have practical uses. So very good points made there. Um, Zaki, let's start with you on this one. In what areas is your organization using AI and what tools are you using? 
So um, the organization in general have uh, departments, uh, AI in, in almost every department now, radiology, cardiology, neurology, and so on. In cardiology, we created a set of tools that allowed you to uh, predict and detect diseases using signals that humans could not interpret uh, prior to that. So one example is we uh, created a model that takes an ECG and electrocardiogram that takes 10 seconds to take and it's very cheap and you can even do it with your watch today. And you can predict diseases that you would usually need an echocardiogram for. For example, low ejection fraction, aortic stenosis, um, and predict events that haven't occurred yet. For example, looking at normal sinus rhythm ECG and predicting ECG, uh, AF, sorry. Uh, so the physician would look at that and say, the patient looks normal, the AI would say, yes, but he has AF, you just don't see it yet. And the tools we're creating, uh, we created our own framework, but it's based mostly on uh, TensorFlow from Google and Keras. And the greatest thing about AI is that the, all of these tools developed by these big companies are open sourced and we can use them with our own data. So we take the tools in-house and we don't need to get the data out. Everything stays inside the Mayo firewall and create these software together with the physician. And the second part we've created is a way to serve them to physicians, right? So in a paper, it's very nice to have everything running on your computer, but eventually you would need to get the results to the physician. So we created a web-based dashboard, for example. So the physician can type in the patient clinic ID or get to it through the EMR and see all of the AI scores for that patient. What's his cardiac age? What is risk for low ejection fraction and so on? And all of these tools are created in-house based on the tools that I mentioned. Very good, Zafar. So for model development, we use open source programming languages such as Python and R. For model deployment, we're using Databricks. Uh, for clinical function, we're partnered with FutureFlow RX. And in the clinical space, we use the AI tools to predict what's going to happen in the fall between COVID and flu, for example. How do we cancel less surgeries with early warning insights of gross census spikes? We can predict patient census by unit by flexible time frame, In the non-clinical space, we're actually using AI to take information from all of our building management systems and sensors and predict when the next airflow handler will fail, when the next device will fail, and provide early maintenance. Zafar, what's the process for seeing how close um, the reality is from the prediction and using that to refine the models and the algorithms? So I think that's an, it, that's an iterative process, right? So our team works in an agile way. We start with a model, we build it, we then take in data and evaluate that data with historical data that we've had from pre previous years. So it's a constant iteration and refining process. But what we found over time is they're very accurate the models, but that's because of the way it's been programmed, hence why I say you have to hire in the right mm. resource sets. And, and because we're in Seattle and we're surrounded by a whole bunch of uh, tech organizations that are very good and smart in this space, we found that data scientists that don't come from healthcare, that come from 
Amazon or Microsoft or Expedia tend to do a very good job of understanding how to build the tech. And then you partner with the right stakeholder and you, you get good outputs. And it certainly helped us in capacity management, capacity flow um, in real time. So don't be afraid uh, looking for your data scientists outside of healthcare. Absolutely, because industries like Amazon and Expedia, they do a lot of data mining and they really understand what that data means, but maybe from a retail space, but fundamentally that's why everybody loves shopping on Amazon, right? Because you can see what you're buying and actually can predict what you might want to buy. Sometimes you feel like it reads your mind, but it doesn't, right? It's it's all built on data. <laughs> Very good. Alpin, your thoughts? So we, we're using... Um... Uh, we're using AI models in, in different uh, different specialties, from radiology to GI to uh, uh, to neurosciences, and uh, and some of them are also population based. So I'll give you one of the first things we did. We're probably um, one of the first hospitals in the country to deploy this, uh, develop and deploy it. Is uh, is intracranial hemorrhage detection on on a CT scan? So probably about five six years ago, we said we have three petabytes of data. Uh, when it comes to imaging, we have uh, 24 years of EPIC data, uh, as well as uh, a lot of genetic data. So, so far, we have about 140,000 uh, whole exome sequenced. So there's a lot of data. What are we going to do with all this data? Um, and uh, so we, we created a few projects in radiology, and then we, we carried them forward. And one of the projects was, was intracranial hemorrhage detection. And we took a data-driven approach where we took 47,000 CT of the head, and then the, through a deep learning convolutional uh, net, we, uh, we taught it to just detect ICH. Fairly simple problem uh, uh, for a human, uh, and and the machine was actually able to do a very good job. We didn't tell it where the uh, where the bleed was. We just told it that there's a bleed or not. And if you look at the heat maps, it was actually able to find it because we use balanced data uh, to to be able to do that. So in radiology, we've we've used that, and then we we validated it for three months, and then we put that into use. And and doing that. Um, we were able to reduce our patient turnaround time for the positive bleeds by about 96%. And the reason that's important is we, I'm not worried about inpatients. I'm not worried about outpatient. I'm not worried about the ED patients because we get to those pretty fast. It's the ones that are in the ED. Uh, I'm, I'm sorry. It's the ones that are outpatients that are lower acuity. Those are the ones I worry about because there are uh, there are hidden uh, higher acuity findings that nobody's picked up until uh, because nobody's looked at them. And here a machine looks at it and reprioritizes things so that a human can look at it much faster. Uh, that's one. Uh, from a population health perspective, uh, if you have, um, uh, you know, there there are many there are many unmet um, uh, care gaps. One of them is. Um, is colonoscopy at age 50. And uh, our patients, um, not just our patients, but people don't want to get a colonoscopy, even though it may be, uh, it may be the best practice um, uh, to do so. Uh, so uh, the, we sort of have used AI to change the conversation. It's a simple model, but the, the model says that uh, uh, you have 17 times more chance of finding something bad in the colon perhaps you should get a colonoscopy instead of just saying that just get a screening colonoscopy. So that, that changed the conversation. And there's early indication that that sort of change in conversation helps people understand that we need to elevate your care so that we can take better care of you. So those are the, those are the two examples. Of course, we're, we're doing the things like that, uh, that, uh, uh, that, uh, uh, 
uh, Zaki talk talked about uh, with the AFib, and we've taken 100 the uh, 1.8 million EKGs and converted them to understand uh, what a, a, who is going to develop AFib. They're, these are so-called normal EKGs, right? Because the humans have not been able to perceive uh, that there is a hidden signal that 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 predicts um, that this person is going to develop and uh, develop AFib within within a year or so. So that so those are the those are the different scenarios that we're using. Um, using AI models in. Very good, very good. Alex, it, do you think if you spoke to 100 uh, organizations, health systems that were active in AI, they would all, they'd all be doing different things, but at a core, they'd all be doing about 20 of the same things. You know, are there classic things that the panelists have mentioned that, okay, everybody's using AI for this, this, and this? Yeah, so I think, you know, everybody's trying to get some sort of efficiency or, or try to get an improvement in some sort of uh, aspect of what they're doing, right? So, um, you know, we do a lot of AI work with a lot of different organizations, right? Some of them are healthcare organizations that are actually providers, uh, but we also do a lot of work with government organizations and uh, pharmaceutical and life sciences and research organizations as well, right? So that's where we sort of see a dichotomy of the work that's being done, right? Whereas in a, in a health system like Mayo or Seattle Children's or Geisinger, right? The main focus there is how do we take better care of the patient directly, right? So we can improve our efficiencies, see more patients, decrease the amount of time a patient um, has to be treated or to be seen, and basically get more people through the system and get them, get them through happier, right? Um, a pharmaceutical company, their goal in AI might be, how can I try to get more drugs to market quicker? right? Or how can I reduce the side effect profile in a drug if I'm customizing a drug, right? How can I use an AI model to sort of do that, right? And if I'm a medical device manufacturer, for example, I think there we're going to see a lot of AI that's behind the scenes, right? So we're going to be at the point where AI is going to be everywhere, even though we don't see it, right? So if you're a manufacturer of portable radiology, portable x-rays, right? You want, your goal is to maybe make a device that will take better pictures using less radiation, right? So denoising algorithms that are gonna be built into the devices themselves, right? Um, so that you can get a clear picture and a properly positioned picture, right? The, the technician can do that automatically because the AI, the inference built into the machine will clean up that picture and guide the technician into proper position. We're gonna see that in MRIs and CTs as well, right? How do we decrease the time that it takes that a patient's inside the MRI scanner? So from 40 minutes down to 10 minutes. So you're gonna be able to double your throughput of your MRI machines, for example, right? So lots of different areas where AI is gonna be used that's not directly related to the direct patient care, right? And, and Dr. Chowdhury mentioned um, facilities, right? So predictive analytics or, or models for predictive analytics of equipment. We see, we do a lot of work with that in the industrial IoT space, in factories and manufacturing lines that really they, they can't afford the downtime Right. So they try to use AI and predictive modeling to see when a machine is going to fail and divert to a different manufacturing line, for example, so that they could do maintenance on, on one while the other one continues running. And, and we're, we're, we're beginning to do that with our, our equipment currently so that our equipment, especially the, our, our Siemens assets, are all monitored and uh, it, it, the events are, are, um, are monitored and it will trigger if, uh, if uh, a tube is going to fail in three days, it will tell us that tube is going to fail in three days. So you can do a preventive maintenance as opposed to having on plan downtime. So that's that's just uh, that's that space is really going to explode. 
It is. And that's where we see, you know, in the operational AI space like that, that's really where we see about 70 to 80% of AI happening in the healthcare space, not necessarily in this clinical decision support area, because there it becomes very tricky. And it really wasn't until last year that the FDA had um, guidelines for approval of uh, AI models as a software or as a medical device, right? So still very nascent there. All right, very good. Next question. Zafar, let's start with you. Are you actively making progress with your AI initiatives? What are some of the challenges and are you able to qualify the outcomes? So I would say very simply, the answer is yes. Most healthcare systems are actively looking at or employing AI tools because that's what the demand is, certainly from the clinical space. The challenges in the current climate, of course, are finances. How do you know, how do you prioritize initiatives, keeping the lights on doors open versus the innovation around AI to change how we provide care? And at the same time, maybe we need to spend more time employing these AI tools, algorithms in effect, on how we improve the cost of delivering healthcare. Because what we certainly learned from COVID is post-COVID, we are still very, very expensive in delivering pediatric care. And how do we reduce those costs? Um, outcomes, yeah, we can, qualify, we can qualify the outcomes based on the models that we've already implemented. Uh, but I think we're getting to a point where we have to find that fine balance between what is innovation, what is keeping our business running, uh, and many healthcare systems have lost so much money during this li this life cycle of COVID. Uh, Zafar, as a quick follow-up, you mentioned, um, you, you sound like you said you're getting requests from clinicians for AI? We're getting requests, but at the same time, we're seeing our healthcare spend increase. We're seeing losses from COVID. So the question for people in tech is, well, how do you prioritize? So what we're looking at now is better governance models that allow us to find that balance. Because every physician will have a driver based on the specialty that they have. And of course, every physician will tell you that their work is mission critical. But you have to find that balance between what truly is mission critical, what can impact outcomes and affect, in, in, our, in our case, kids' lives, versus what is just must, I would love to have, but don't necessarily need to have in 2020. Yeah, it's fascinating, the, the better governance, because when you have so many things you want to do, and the, the more the budget shrinks, the more that governance has to be sharp, right? Because you, you, you've yeah. got less and less things that can be done. So those are excellent points. Um, Alpin, your thoughts on the question? So I think yeah, the, the answer is yes, we are making progress uh, with our uh, initiatives and some of the examples I, I gave you. Uh, what are the challenges? There are, there are so many, right? So one of them is governance, like, uh, like Zafar was alluding to. So one of the things we've done is that uh, we have a steering committee, uh, which I co-chair with our um, uh, chief data informatics officer, David Wadri. And, and the members of the committee are clinical leaders, as well as executive leaders from CFO to CMO to C uh, chief innovation officer. Um, so... 
so what that does is, is gives us guidance from a system perspective, which direction we want to go in. Uh, and I think that's, that is really helpful. And perhaps say that this is this, or, or perhaps even that which direction we don't want to go in. Um, and I think that's, um, uh, that, is, that has been really helpful. The second challenge that I see, there is shortage of, uh, perhaps not in Seattle because you guys are tech rich, um, but certainly elsewhere in the country, there's shortage of data scientists and there's shortage of, um, of uh, folks who can do some of these analytics. So education is going to be the key. Um, and so we're building systems to not only educate our healthcare providers to, to be aware of data science, but also uh, to, to make sure that those who are interested in, in data science, those who are interested in AI, have platforms to learn and experiment and, and create that enthusiasm and intuitive understanding uh, uh, from, the, from, the very begin, uh, from the very beginning. So, this, uh, so that's uh, the education and, and future data uh, uh, scientists and future workforce is the second challenge. And the third is an eternal challenge is data itself. Uh, garbage in, garbage out, mm. uh, and and in our in in many cases, bias in, bias out, right? So, um, how does one understand biases? How does one understand clean the data? Because you you've seen, and all of us have seen this. You have this biased data set generated by humans with uh, internal human biases. You feed it to this perfect model that's designed to be very accurate. So by design, you're introducing biases and teaching this model. And then you have, then you say, well, the, the model is biased. It's not the model that's necessarily biased. It's the data that are biased that is teaching the the um, uh, the model the wrong things. And I think so. So I don't you know, majority of what we do is data cleansing and not necessarily the modeling itself, right? So, so those are the challenges that I see. And, uh, you know, for the panel, a question to you is that how do we cleanse the data uh, from a bias perspective? Do we need to introduce synthetic uh, data in it to, to, um, uh, to prevent or to course correct the biases? Do we go forward and say that instead, instead of adjusting the weights, you fix the weights and then and then if you know the outcome to, uh, uh, to predict what the input should be. Uh, so all of those things which um, uh, sort of go through my head uh, trying to correct the data because ultimately that's gonna be our biggest challenge. Historical well, let's biases. put that to the panel. Let's put that to the panel. Uh, Zaki, your thoughts on uh, biases yeah. and cleansing data. I can hit the nail by its head. That it's assumed that about 80 to 85% of a data scientist's time is actually cleaning the data set. And that, that's also the part that data scientists like the least, of course, right? The uh, modeling part is the fun part, but it's, it's never really the one thing that makes the difference, right? If you have a good data set and the signal is there, an AI model would be able to pick it up. Now, AI models are great in picking up patterns. So if you have a bias, it's by definition a pattern, and it will find that. Uh, and while we uh, need to be uh, cautious when we train these models, I think that as long as we do very robust validation, we can be okay with it. Because I, I, just going back to the example of the ejection fraction, we took the same model and we were worried, right? 95% of uh, Minnesota residents are white. So we wanted to make sure it works with other groups as well. So we took the same model and tested it on thousands of patients from different races and ethnicities and made sure that the uh, accuracy level and the uh, AUC of the civil operating characteristics stays the same. So 
as long as we validate the model on external data set and see that it works on them, and the while even if the bias was there, it didn't transform to the decision, I think that's okay. We do need to spend a lot of time on trying to make sure that uh, the implicit bias won't affect patients before we use them in practice. But as long as we do studies to validate it, and maybe FDA will make it part of the uh, regulation process, right? Show that it works not only on the cohort you created it on, but also on a sample cohort with different races, ethnicities, sexes, ages, and so on. I think that's something that can be solved. So far, it sounds like so many of the conversations I have on different topics boil down to data quality. You know, all the stuff you want to do with it uh, is great, but you have to have good data. Uh, so your thoughts on Alpin's question? So it's, it's, uh, it's around training. We have to do a better job of training the people that are inputting the data in the first place, right? We need more collaboration across organizations. Because what I, what I see here is all these health systems out there developing all these tools, testing all these tools, but there's no cross-pollination, right? So I'm spending that money developing these tools, applying those tools to my data cohort, my span of patients. Somebody else in another part of the country is doing it on a different span of patients. And I think this is where the vendors come in, right? We, we need a standardization collaboration model to rinse and repeat exactly what's being created. Because if we, if we keep innovating individually, we'll never get to a standardized model and we would have spent 15 times what we should have to get to the same answer. And what we need is we need the vendors to be the broker in the middle, us create these tools, put them into a central repository, which can then be applied to different patient cohorts to see whether the model works does it work in the Western US? Does it work in the Eastern US? Does it work in China? Does it work in Europe? We're not doing that. We're, everybody's spending their own pot of money trying to innovate this stuff when actually we could centralize it. At the same time, the, the vendors that help us create data, the electronic health record system vendors, et cetera, they need to play more fairly. They need to interoperate the data more clearly and adhere to standards. Even though they claim they do, they don't necessarily do that. So it's a combination of things that we need to look at if we are really to move this forwards. Otherwise, we will be siloed for the next five to 10 years. Do you think the interoperability regs that have, you know, or I think they were just delayed, um, information blocking, everything they're trying to do, do you see that helping to, to create the vision that you've got? I think that that's a positive move forwards, but we always seem to move and then take a step back. Mm -hmm. So, you know, when we should just be enforcing that, we're like, oh, well, we're going to have to delay that or, <laughs> we're gonna have to, or we can't do that because somebody's lobbied somebody else to make that change, right? It, it should just be the edict that the patient's data is important and me getting my patient data from Children's to Geisinger to... Mayo should be a seamless process without any roadblocks. And it sounds like you're talking. It sounds like you're talking about almost an open source vision of uh, you know when a health system comes up with something you know innovates in a way, put it out there. 
put it out there for everyone to, to, to pull from, but you're saying the vendors you could see doing that, but they're just going to be able to do it at best with their customers. Um, your, your vision maybe could be even grander, which is somehow it goes out in an open source type thing where not just the vendors, but anyone can, you know, grab it from this place somewhere in, in the cyberspace. We, we should, because aren't we all trying to achieve the same goal? I'm, I'm trying to make my kids healthier. I know other health systems are trying to get their adults healthier. So why am I doing that work and Alpen's doing the work and Zaki's doing the work and I don't know what work they're doing? Why can't we have a single entity that brings all of that together? And yes, we should be able to reutilize that source code in an open source fashion and apply it to our patient cohorts. Because it's just... We just keep repeating the same thing, just children's hospitals alone. Every children's hospital is doing the same AI innovation. It's great for vendors, right? Because we keep paying the vendors 17 times over for the same thing. But don't you think that that's not right for the patient? So I think this is time to change the model and say, if you are building a tool that will impact someone's life and improve the outcome of their life, that should be freely available once it's created. So, Alex, let me bring you in here. This is all very interesting, but it, it comes down to the nature of healthcare in the United States, right? Because even though we have nonprofit entities, essentially they're competing against each other. So, you know, organizations are competing for patients, right? So you have a, a level of competition um, and that mucks everything up. It, right. it, it does. It does. Now, you know, we're an international organization, right? So we, we have views into healthcare systems throughout the world, right? So the, the, the problem stated here is common throughout the world, right? Because the data sets are all in these different silos, right? And you may create a standard model, but you must feed it data to, to improve that model, right? And one of the things that we're looking at is the, the concept of federated machine learning, right? So that the data doesn't have to move from silo to silo, right? But the machine learning algorithm can move from silo to silo, thus improving itself on the data that's available in that location, right? So the data stays in place, but the machine learning model can move from place to place. Now, everybody has to agree to, to this concept, right? So let's take the three organizations that are represented here, Seattle Children's, Mail, and Geisinger. These three organizations can decide, okay, we're going to be part of this shared machine learning model where all our data, it will remain in place, right? But the same model can be shared across us because uh, diseases that I may see or conditions or data that I may have here, you may not have where you are, right? So Dr. Atia mentioned the 95% of his local patient population is Caucasian, right? Whereas perhaps, you know, you could have a patient population in Southeast Asia that's drastically different, right? So can we share that model with the data remaining in place and improve that model overall so that what I learn in Southeast Asia, I can take advantage of in Seattle or in Rochester, Minnesota, or in central Pennsylvania, right? So that's one of the things that we're looking at. Now, standard, you must have a standard system in place also, right? I mean, that's outside of really our control at an organization like HPE, right? But standards like FHIR or you know, whatever the case may be, right? Um, interoperability standards, those should be in place as well. But until then, you know, we can use these federated learning models. Now, there's a lot of federated learning models out there. Google has one. Uh, we have our own, which we call Swarm Learning. I'm happy to talk about that to, to anybody if they're interested. But really, you know, we see that as a way to sort of get around some of these 
some of these issues and really move the needle forward. Alpin, uh, you want to weigh in on any of that? Yeah, no, I think I think federated models are um, um, are the dream, and hopefully we can we get there one of these days. Um, but it, it it really gives us so much flexibility, like what uh, what Alex was talking about uh, about Southeast Asian populations. So. Uh, you know, if you can generalize a model and then apply it to a particular population, the performance may not be as good. But if you can train it on, if you have more homogeneous population, then train it on that homogeneous population, maybe the performance improves. So it gives you the flexibility uh, and and also take away some of the biases. So perhaps, uh, so I'll give you an example. Uh, if you were to try to predict who's going to get diabetes, um, and uh, if you train on United States, weight and obesity is going to be one of the largest variables involved. But if you take that data to South Asia, where there are actually um, people with type 2 diabetes who are not as obese, um, that may not apply well because the population is different. And the um, and um, uh, and so, so the federated model is uh, is always a good one. The, the challenging part is um, who's gonna who, who's gonna do it. Uh, as second is uh, so I think I think some kind of government involvement from that gives us um, uh, the funding and uh, and the ability to do that might be might be important. I'm not saying the government manage a project, uh, but um, but it's something that uh, allows us to do. Um, uh, that the funding is is the thing that's going to be very important. Then the second is uh, is debate and reg and um, and guidance on secondary secondary use of data um, because right now that's being played out in the court, and I think that's something that really needs to be debated and understand what the implications are. So um, it's when you look at uh, University of Chicago and Google. Uh, it, those those relationships that are being played out in court is something that we need to understand better, so that so that the rest of us uh, um, are um, have better guidance. Zaki, anything you want to add? I think further learning is probably the way to go, and you want to share that. I'm I'm not a fan of just open sourcing everything we have, uh, because there eventually a lot of uh, personal information in there, and while we're trying to share that. For the good of humanity, someone might try to use it against, it, right? And, and and you're not immune to that. Although I think I think there are challenges there too, right? If you were to federate CT, um, or, or or even there there are certain data sharing that is problematic, even if you de-identify things, because there is no real true de-identification. If you do a head CT data and if you share the data, you have the per person's face when you reconstruct it, and you can do facial facial recognition algorithms. Um, and and identify who that who that person is. So so I think that's the that's the other thing we gotta keep keep in mind as we um, as we try to share data. Well, that that's one of the benefits of of, of a yeah. distributed machine learning model, right? That sure. the data does not does does not get shared, right? The data yeah. stays. You don't need to de-identify it. You don't need to do anything out of the ordinary. It just stays in your location, right? And the machine learning model gets trained on that, and yeah. then the learnings from there, the inference from there gets passed on to the higher level model that sh the model itself becomes shared uh, with other people. Absolutely, agree. But even if you don't, sh I mean, what I'm trying to get at is even if you don't share the data because of all the legal challenges and security rules, the models that we build could be shared and we could apply that to our own data. And that's not happening either, right? Because yeah. all these health systems creating hundreds of different models 
that I don't have insight into, just as much as you don't know what models I'm creating, I don't know what models Mayo is creating, but if I could access those models and apply them to my data, it would benefit my patient population. Or I can start from scratch and build the exact same models over the next three years at a, a huge cost, which would then delay that benefit for my patient group. Yeah. Zafar, it's almost like a vision of uh, a donation. You know, you create the algorithm and then you donate it or, or you make it, you know, you put it out there for anyone to use. Yeah, I mean, it's a concept that's used with other software tools, right? right. And so why wouldn't we do that if it's going to benefit someone's life, right? We have to, de we have to start determining in this country how we commoditize people's lives, and what I'm seeing a lot of is we spend a lot of money trying to commoditize people's lives. And if we take anything away from COVID is that we're all in this together and therefore you in Rochester is just as important as me in Seattle, right? So we need to be able to share more so that we can get to a quicker outcome, a quicker benefit. And I don't think we're doing that still. All right, very good. I wanna throw out our, our audience poll here. Um, it's a question that occurred to me. Everyone can vote. Also, our panelists can vote. Uh, when it comes to AI, the CIO's role is more about tempering expectations than championing use. So what, what, do, what do we think CIOs are having to do out there? Zafar, um, I'm actually going to, I want to get your feedback on this. Is it more about tempering expectations or championing use? What are you find yourself doing more? I think it's a balance between the two. My responsibility is to, yes, be the champion, but at the same time, make sure that people aren't over-expecting what they can actually achieve. I mean, the term artificial intelligence itself is somewhat incorrect, right? Because is it really artificial intelligence or is it a bunch of smart humans creating algorithms that we then put into a computer system? So I think we need to... CIOs have to balance that job on a day-in, day-out basis. I don't think there's a clear-cut answer to this question. All right. Well, we'll take a look at that in a moment. Uh, I want to get to our Ask a Co-Panelist. Alex, I want to give you an opportunity to ask your Co-Panelist a question. Yeah, really, you know, um, very basic question and really to everybody on the panel, right? If there's one technology in AI that you wish you could have right now, what, what would that be? Zaki? How do you make sure your model is always up to date? How do you label your data in a way that you make sure that the data hygiene is good, right? If you didn't mix training and testing. And you can do it once or times, but if you want to create a process that would go for basically forever, self-learning uh, machine that keeps learning and learning and learning, we'd probably need to create these processes that would uh, make AI development as solid as software development is today. Alpen? So um, I, have a, a, I have a question for Zafar. Uh, okay, I was going to have you answer Alex's question first. Ah. <laughs> I apologize, Alex. Can you, uh, can you repeat that question for me? Sure. If, if, if you sort of had any technology within AI that you would wish you would have right now, what, what would that be? I think the, the, um, uh, it's more, more of an infrastructure question for me for um, the ability to access the data, having a bus that delivers uh, 
delivers it to the the end users in a much more a much more um, a hands off kind of a way. Uh, it's it's a dream, but it's uh, so you have data coming in, your model is chewing through, but you can integrate it much more easily. Um, and I think that that can really, um, if you have an easy way of doing that, that can really open things up uh, from uh, from an AI perspective. So far. So I don't think I want a particular technology. What I want from a vendor in this space is a consumption-based model that only charges me if together we can show real benefit when we apply the models. Because it, what I'm seeing in the industry is people try to sell me a piece of software, I buy it. A year down the line, it actually might give me some benefit. But for the first 12 months, I'm burning cash. What I would rather do is say, I want to consume it. We'll throw models into it. If it delivers outcome-based benefits for my healthcare organization, then Mr. So-and-so will pay you. Okay, very good. Um, uh, Alpin, since you started your question for Zafar, I got to let you ask it. So Zafar, get ready for this one. Of course. Uh, uh, so Zafar, one of the things you said sort of resonated with me about, about teaching the the people who are creating the data uh, at, to create less biased data. Um, and I think, I think that's very important. Um, do you think there is a role for AI to bring to their attention that, hey, there is bias in your decision-making, uh, so, uh, so perhaps you need to recalibrate? Uh, what are your thoughts? So I think as a decision support tool, yes. I think we could use AI to highlight areas or key areas where people do make biased decisions. But without the open conversation in healthcare organizations about the level of biases we put in, it's that's only just gonna be a tool. I think the biggest sure. bigger challenge in healthcare systems is these things we just don't want to talk about because it's such an uncomfortable conversation. So. I would say, you know, at the executive level, every health system needs to have those difficult conversations. And yes, I agree. We as technologists could use some of those tools to point out when someone is making an interesting choice or a not interesting choice. All right. Thank we're going to look at our poll now. I'm going to have everyone guess. Now, What we're, the number you're going to give me is percentage agree. So what percentage of the respondents do you think agreed with this statement that when it comes to AI, the CIO's role is more about tempering expectations? Zafar? Um, at least 60%. Alex? Oh, I hope it's low. I hope it's under 20. Under, okay, we'll give you 20. Um, Alpin? I, I hope it's low, but I predict 57%. 57, I like that, very specific. Zaki? I'm optimistic, I would say 25. 25. All right, let's share the results. The answer is 44% agree with that statement. So I think that's Alpin. I think that's Alpin, if my math is correct, but I could be wrong. 44%. Anyway, 44%. Um, we're almost out of time. I want to give Alex, I want to give you uh, an opportunity for a final thought. You, you heard about some comments on what uh, our panelists wanted from a vendor. Um, you talked about your vision for sort of uh, leveraging federated data for to help everyone learn from the data. Um, how do you want 
everyone on the line and people listening to think of what HPE can do for them as they move down this road. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I want to thank all the panelists for participating in this. It was really, you know, eye-opening for me to see what you are doing in your organizations and what you find fruitful and, and also what you find challenging. So some of the statements given, so how do we manage the models, right? Uh, consumption models, consumption-based models for, uh, you know, using the infrastructure, right? Uh, you know, we provide these things, right? So one of the big things that we get asked a lot is, hey, we're doing all this AI in 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 a POC, but how do we get it into operation? How do we manage these models? It, you know, it's getting out of hand. You know, we have all these different versions. How do we version track these things, right? How do we treat it sort of like DevOps, right? So there's this concept of MLOps, right? Of, of treating your, your machine learning um, models as sort of uh, code and version controlling them, source code controlling them, right? So we do things like that, right? Uh, we do consumption-based, um, consumption-based as a service for everything, right? So we have AI as a service um, products and, and services that we offer, right? So while we are not a healthcare company, we're here to really empower you to use your data, uh, apply models to that data, get it out in production, whether it's an edge-based deployment in a, in a private cloud or in the public cloud, right? How do you bring that all together? And how do we serve that up in this consumption-based model? So, you know, I encourage, you know, all the panelists um, and everyone out there, um, you know, that's listening to this uh, webinar to, to feel free to, you know, you could reach out to myself or reach out to your local HPE um, account manager. And, you know, we'll be happy to help you really, you know, try to harness that data and really get some meaningful insight out of it. Excellent. Well, that's about all we had time for today. Tremendous conversation. Great panel. Uh, regarding continuing education, you can use the final slide in our deck. Uh, you'll get an email when the on-demand recording of this event is ready for viewing. If you want to sponsor an event with us, you can reach out to Nancy Wilcox. From our team, you can go to our website to view our upcoming webinars and register for them. And with that, I want to thank our tremendous panel, Dr. Zafar Chaudhry, Dr. Alpin Patel, uh, Zaki Atia and Dr. Alex Madama. And I want to thank our sponsor, HP and Intel, and thank you for attending. And with that, everybody have a wonderful day. Thank you.